Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 429, of and Just Entering into this new Chanukah of this year, Tov Shem Pei Gimel, a festival of lights. So this will be a special Chanukah edition. This program is merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuch Elena and Miriam Baschayasar Altois, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel, Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todres Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. Chanukah, a holiday that is with us now thousands of years. First thing that always comes to mind is the words of the Ramban. The words of the Ramban, where he says the immortal words, Parsha Baaleischa, the Parsha that talks about Baaleischa raising the flames that the high priest, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah in the, in the holy temple. So even though the Torah makes it clear it should be a ner tomid, an eternal flame, but at the same time, the first temple was destroyed, the sem- second temple was destroyed, and with that, the, ex- the menorah was extinguished. However, haneras halolu, haneras halolu, these flames of Hanukkah ain't in p'telon le'elam says the Ramban, Nachmanides. They will never be extinguished. They will never end. And they continue to burn every year, even when there's no Beis Amigdash, physical temple. The menorah was lit every year on Hanukkah for eight days. And so it continues till this very day. There's something awesome about immortality, eternity, a menorah that continues to burn no matter what darkness we went through, physical, spiritual, psychological, emotional, the persecutions, the expulsions, the genocides, the holocausts, holocausts, the flames continue to burn. So just think about that as we enter Hanukkah. Just look at the flame. The Friedrich Rebbe tells us that the Tzuhern was the lichtelecht that sailed. We need to listen to what the flames tell us. They tell us a story. Many stories, but the one primary story is this one. The story of your eternity, of my eternity. The flame continues to burn, no matter what. It may be a small flame, but it continues to burn. I remember when we prepared an advertisement to be published in the New York Times and other newspapers for Hanukkah. So I wrote it up in English, and I called it Whispering Flames based on this principle, that the flames tell us a story. And then uh, several lessons that we learn from the flames of Hanukkah, which we'll, we will discuss. The Rebbe edited it, extensively, I should say, and on whispering, he wrote, It's not meant to be quiet, whispered. It persumanisa. It's a public miracle. It's supposed to publicize the miracle. Now, of course, whispering flames was just a poetic word, but still it indicates a type of subdued experience, subdued celebration, and the Rebbe didn't want to leave that. So we changed, I think we wrote, Once Upon a Flame, or The Story of the Flames. So the Hanukkah, on one hand, it's just a flame, it's a small flame, and flames don't sound loud, loud or large, but its message is not whispering. It's a message that resonates, a message that echoes and reverberates from one end of the world to the next. There are many messages, of course. In that ad, I just I gleaned a few of them. One was about illuminating that light naturally illuminates the dark. One was about adding each night of Hanukkah, growing in holiness. We light the menorah toward the outside, to illuminate the material world. And we will review some of these lessons as we go through this program. I just wanted to open up with something that just jumps out. So to listen to the story of the flames, and they tell a story. They tell a story. So with that, what is Hanukkah's message to us today? Let's begin with that. So Hanukkah's message has many messages, many lessons throughout history. But let's talk about a few that would be relevant today. 
Now, today we live in a world where we're not being persecuted as the Jews were during the time of Hanukkah by the Greek Assyrians or during the time of Purim and all the different persecutions that we experienced, whether it was the Greeks or whether it was the Syrians, whether it was the Persians, the Babylonians or the Romans, before that the Egyptians and the Assyrians. I mean, the list goes on. Today, we live in freedom. However, there's a much greater challenge today. That freedom poses a certain sense of apathy when you get comfortable. When you're fighting for your beliefs, when you're fighting for your life, actually, it tends to crystallize your values. But when things are going smoothly, you know, we don't feel it's dark. Yes, physically it's dark, but we're living in comfortable times, prosperous times. We can celebrate Hanukkah without fear that somebody's coming to arrest us or hide, we have to hide. But that too is a darkness, the darkness of apathy, the darkness of indifference. So one of the lessons of Hanukkah is that we have to light a flame. Even when we think everything is illuminated, no, there's plenty of darkness, the darkness of our internal lives, our psychological, emotional demons, darker corners, ugly corners. Everyone can look into their own hearts and souls. Hanukkah teaches us there's no darkness that's more powerful than light. That even if you were personally experiencing a personal loss or gone through dysfunctionality or abuse or trauma of any sort or experiencing the fears and insecurities of life, know that you have a flame burning inside you. Neir Hashem Nishma Sodom, the soul of the person, is the flame of God. And Neir Mitzvah V'Torah Er, the flame, the candle of a mitzvah, the light of the Torah will ignite that spark of your soul, will bring it alive, will fan those flames. So no matter what we're doing and whatever situation, so translating Hanukkah to our times means finding that dark moment, that as the sun sets in your life. There's one thing when you're lighting, when, when, when it's day and the sun is shining, but there are times we're talking here Metaphorically, when the sun is not shining, you're dealing with a certain shadow of life. The Hanukkah flames burn. Another lesson, what I said before about eternity. Even though we have so much today, we have that higher standard of living and everything is available to us, but it's also temporary. At the end of the day, everything material comes and goes. Whereas Hanukkah reminds us of the eternal connection things that never die, the things that So those are just a few lessons that we can take from Hanukkah. The idea of illumination. Also, illumination means illuminating and warming our environments. That's what light does. The responsibility we carry, not just to light our own lives, but also to illuminate others. And finally, the idea of growth, that every day we add a flame. So the minimal of the mitzvah, you don't have to add every day, but mahadim and mahadim is that every person lights the menorah and, we, and it grows from day to day. The first night, one flame, the second night, second flame, to tell us we're always growing. We're never satisfied with yesterday's accomplishments. Which miracle is greater? Winning the war against the Greeks or discovering the oil? Let's read in more detail, which Hanukkah miracle was more important? Our small group of soldiers that won a war against the giant Greek army or the oil lasting for eight days? So this is a classic question that's asked. Why do we celebrate Hanukkah through lighting the menorah? That seems to be secondary. The main miracle was that they won over the Greeks who had desecrated the temple and they were able to rededicate the temple and the menorah and the Mizbeach and the altar it's so one of the reasons Hanukkah from the Hanukkahs, Hamizbeach, like rededicating the altar and the temple that was desecrated. And as a result of that, they were able to light the menorah. So this question is asked in Chassidus, among other places. And Chassidus' answer is because the teichen, the content of the mitzvah of Hanukkah, is the lighting of Ner Mitzvah Because what did the Greeks want to do? As opposed to Haman, who wanted to destroy 
annihilate every Jew physically, every man, woman, and child, as opposed to the Egyptians, who had their own intentions, Hanukkah, the Greeks, did not want to kill the Jews. They wanted to kill their spirit. What that means is like we say in the prayer, in Allah Nisim we say, what do we say? That they want us to forget not Torah as a book of morals or a book of inspiration, but that is God's Torah, the sanctity of the Torah. Not the morals and the values, but that is God's values, that is God's mitzvahs. They wanted what? Take away the flame, the spirit, the spirituality of the mitzvahs. They wanted it to be rational. Rational, philosophical. So how do you celebrate a victory over that? It's not just the victory of the battle, the victory over the philosophy, the victory over the ideology. So you light the menorah. So it's interesting. So even though the menorah on one hand, you can say, was one aspect of the temple, but it also captures the central theme of the battle and the victory of Hanukkah, a spiritual victory. As the Levush writes, that Purim was a victory of the Jewish bodies that they wanted to destroy. And Hanukkah is a victory of the Jewish souls that they wanted to annihilate. And that's why it's signified with the menorah, the lighting of the flame. Okay. Yet we still mention the battles, but not as a primary aspect, but as another aspect, because it is part of it. Next question. Why is the number eight so significant to Hanukkah? Would the miracle be less if the flames burned, say, for six days? The fact that Hanukkah is eight nights appears very arbitrary. I'm elaborating on the question. The major miracle was that the Jews overthrew their oppressors and continued practicing Judaism freely. What would have happened if the oil would only last one night? Would that diminish the greater miracles so to reduce the celebration to just one night, one day? On the other hand, what if it would have lasted 20 days or more? Would the miracle then be so much larger, warranting a much longer celebration due to what is apparently an arbitrary number? The distance to travel and get new oil, referring to that's why it took eight days, because there was no oil, it took eight days till they pressed and, and, and manufactured new oil. And what if they were able to find pure oil? Would there be no celebration at all, even though they had defeated their enemies? Okay. So it's not arbitrary at all. Nothing is arbitrary in general, especially when it comes to a mitzvah, especially Hanukkah. So here too, the number eight, you look in Primi Sater, Chsidis, we're talking Chsidis applied, number eight is a significant number. Number seven reflects the cycle of life. Seven days of the week, seven years of the Shemitah, of the sabbatical, the seven emotions, the structure of seven. Eight, as the Rajba writes, the Rajba, Shal Shusha Rajba, Shemir It refers to a transcendent force. Brismila is a transcendent energy on the eighth day. Eight being beyond the structure. The structure is also a holy structure, which answers a very important question. Hanukkah is coming to Wad to remember and to rededicate the menorah that was lit and the temple that was desecrated. And they didn't have enough oil to burn. The menorah in the temple is seven uh, branches, not eight. So why would we add an eighth one? So there's the answer because we don't want to create anything exactly as it was in the Beis Amigdash, so we do something different. But on a deeper level, because in the, in the menorah in the temple was in good time, so to speak. That's the structure of divine manifestation in the seven midas, in the seven emotions, the seven divine attributes, seven branches. Hanukkah came in a time of darkness where the light was extinguished and they could not find pure oil. And on a spiritual and psychological level meant that there was a desecration, there was a challenge against the spirituality and the soul, the flame within us. So Hanukkah needs an additional strength, an eighth day, eight days, to demonstrate that we need now a transcendent energy to transform even darkness to light, which also explains 
I believe it's another question we'll get to in a moment. Why Hanukkah Dafka? You light the candles in Hanukkah, not in the morning, like in the temple, but in the evening. Because about the night, illuminating the night, and we and not like the menorah in the temple, which is lit inside the temple, we light it al Pesach Besay, me facing out the outside. Because its message is one not just to bring light into the holy structure of existence, but also to bring light even to the darker place, and that's the eighth transcendent dimension. And that's the significance of number eight. So with that, let's do a question related to that. If the menorah represents a reminder to us that it's our job to bring light into the world via Torah and mitzvahs, then why do we only light it for eight days? Perhaps we should light it every day. The other way around. So first of all, as I just said, the eight is significant because it wants to bring out that transcendent element. But the same question you could ask with Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot, if it's message, the message of freedom, the message of Torah, the message of uh, joy, why don't we have Sukkot all year round, Pesach all year round? Because the point is that we have a certain time of the year where we're given this surge of energy, and that's when the channel open, the window opens up. What is the, that time? Time is energy. The energy of Pesach is freedom. The energy of Hanukkah is light in darkness. And then the goal is to then draw from that to the rest of the year. So the holiday gives us the strength, but the ultimate goal is to make a home for God in the lowest of worlds. And that has to come through our initiative. So to learn from the message of Hanukkah, yeah, by all means, all year round you should be illuminating and warming and transforming darkness to light. But like it is with everything, because we live in a world of time and space, so there's a time where it's strongly, des- where that's the prominent message. And then we have to carry that message into the rest of the year. Additional element, I believe we spoke about a while back, the concept of when you say halal every day, it's almost like an insult. So I keep saying thank you, thank you, thank you. That loses its meaning, it loses its power. Hanukkah, to remember the miracles, to remember it was unique. Once it becomes an everyday thing, you may lose the power of what Hanukkah is. It's a unique time. And yet, that uniqueness now spreads and continues to perpetuate throughout the year. Okay. A bunch of more questions Hanukkah related. I will also add, because this is already the 429th episode, that I spoke obviously on this topic of Hanukkah the last nine years. I'm trying to cover ground that maybe I've not covered in the past. So if you want to go back and search, and it's a good time to announce, chassidusapply.com is a website where you can uh, find all the archives and all the previous materials and other resources for chassidus, including other... And just search by word Hanukkah. All the programs are time-stamped, meaning you can find the exact topic and just link, click on the link and it'll take you straight to that topic. At this point, we've covered thousands of topics. And with that, I should, let me use this opportunity as well, since today Hanukkah begins, we're also beginning our end-of-year Hanukkah campaign called Gift of Meaning, where we turn to you, our friends, our partners, to help support us. At the end of the day, these programs are free programs, and it's our, and it's our gift and our blessing to be able to produce them. But it takes money. There's investments, so I turn to you and I appeal to you. Please help us in any way you can, whether it's one dollar, whether it's a million dollars. Go to giftofmeaning.com and contribute generously. Due to generous partners, every donation is tripled. There's matchers. So if you give $1,000, the matchers that will add 2000 meaning that your gift will be $3,000. Your 1000 plus the other, the other um, matchers. So please join us in this campaign and please share this with others. This is the time of the year that we do this and I feel very um, passionate to be able to feel comfortable. The money is going directly toward the growth of this and many of our other programs. We reach tens of hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people literally on a daily basis. And we want to double and triple that this year. That's my commitment, to bring it to even more people both quantitatively and qualitatively. To do so requires resources. So I ask you, again, please donate generously to thegiftofmeaning.com. 
can easily donate there, all different possible ways. And um, God should bless you for your kindness and generosity many times over. And what better time, Hanukkah, coming from Yutas Kisl, the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, and coming straight into Hanukkah. Okay, with that, let us continue. Let us continue with some more questions. So now that we talked about the number of days, let's talk about the menorah, its location. Why is the menorah on the left side? So this, we say, mezuzim yemin, or menorah mesmail. That when you put the menorah by the door, al pesach besim that was the custom. So the mezuzah is on the right side of the door, and the menorah is always on the left side. That's what we're told. So the question is, why? Let me read it in more detail. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, usually when we do a mitzvah, we use our right hand, which is associated with the stronger side. Yeah, yad yamin, the right hand. However, when we light our menorah, we do it on the left side of the door. Is there a deeper reason why we light the menorah on the left side? Or is, or is a more simple reason that we don't accidentally burn the mezuzah, which is on the right side? Well, obviously there's far more to it. And yes, smoil and yamin, right and left, or yamin and smoil, represent chesed and gvurah. In a sense, what we've been talking about. Chesed is when the light shines. Kavura is tzimtzum, is concealment. The message of Hanukkah is to bring light in the concealed place. When there's a challenge, a challenge against the spirit of Judaism, like we spoke about earlier. Ner mitzvah er. And that's why the mitzvah is all connected to at night, number eight, and now left to be mevader and elevate gvura, that even when there's gvura, we also bring light there. So menorah mismail, so even though light on its own can be also chesed, there's a light of chesed. But our light we want to focus on is a light that transforms even the negative, even the severities, even the judgments, all in the word gvura, all on the left side. And that's the reason. So someone asks, in this context... In honor of Hanukkah, can Rabbi Jacob please, please give a short synopsis of the Alter Rebbe's Maimer from Torah Er called Ner Mitzvah, where he explains why we put the mezuzah on the right side and the menorah on the left side. Thank you. So briefly, this is one of the key points. Because Yemin is when we talk about bringing Amshacha, it's a transmission of Chesed, that's positive. That's on the positive side, of, positive as in a transmission of Chesed, the flow of kindness of love. Kvura is more the opposite. It's when things shrink and things are more constrained and restrained, discipline. And the point of Hanukkah is to transform Kvura to Chesed. And that's the bottom line. Ner mitzvah v'tayrer. And the Ner itself, the flame, as we see, has several colors to it. There's the flame that's closest to the wick is bluish, tcheles, nuhura tichla, the flame that's a little farther is more, is, is, and, and even closer to the flame, to the wick is even darker than that. Then there's the yellowish, and then there's the whitish color. Because the point is to transform the gvura, which is more reddish and darker, into brightness, into chesed. So that is, so we see how Hanukkah, when you really look at it, every aspect of it, we've talked about its placement on the left side, we talked about its number, eight. Now we're talking about, uh, we, talk, we just talked about the left side, we talked about um, when, it's, when, the, when the menorah is lit, and that's what I'm going to read next. Yeah. The next question is, why do we light the menorah facing outside and after sundown, unlike the, unlike the menorah in the temple? And the answer is, we already said it, so I'm just going to repeat what I said, that because that's the point of Hanukkah, to illuminate the darkness, and not just when things are going well, that even in darkness, light is also more powerful. So I'm just repeating what I said before. I was just looking to see, there's so many questions, I'm trying to find, okay. 
Next question. Why can't we use bulbs for the Hanukkah lights? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question. To my understanding, when electricity was invented, the community needed to know what exactly it was. So the rabbis consulted with scientists and determined that completing a circuit sends a spark which turns on a light, and it's considered like lighting a fire. So why are we not allowed to turn on a light bulb on Shabbos? So therefore, we are not allowed to turn on a light bulb on Shabbos because it violates the match, the malach of lighting a fire. But when it comes to Hanukkah, the rabbis hold it has to be a real menorah and not an electric menorah because an electric menorah doesn't have a real flame. So if an electric bulb is not a real flame, why can't it be used on Shabbos? What's really going on here? Very practical question. So the answer is like this. We're not just talking about the minimal element of igniting something like electricity. In Hanukkah, you want to have the full picture. The menorah in the temple was lit with Shem and Zayizach, with pure olive oil. So you want to symbolize that, and especially that also is the message of what we're talking about. Why pure? Why couldn't they just use oil? So it was desecrated. So it's not clean oil, but it will burn. Because the whole point of Hanukkah is the purity, the integrity of the spirit, as we said. So therefore, even though technically speaking, you can say electricity is a form of lighting a spark. We'll discuss that in a moment some more. But Hanukkah, you want to have much more than that. You don't just light a spark. You want to have the purity of it all. And that's why you have to use real, real olive oil. Some people use candles. It's also made of wax and so on. And not the electricity. Another point even though it's true as far as malocha Shabbos goes, there is a malocha because you're igniting something. But that's regarding, because in Shabbos you want the opposite, that even the smallest type of malocha is also considered a malocha. You're not looking necessarily, it has to be the purest form of lighting a fire. So even electricity was established that it can be, it, it, it's also a form of lighting a fire, but it's not in the full sense like Hanukkah is. That's the main distinction between the two. If anybody has seen or is familiar with more discussion on this topic, and I'm sure someone may have discussed it, please share it with me and I'll share it with the public. Okay. Next question. Is Yutas Kislev connected with Hanukkah? Has the Rebbe ever said that the proximity of Yutas Kislev to Hanukkah is significant? Is it fair to say that the light of Chassidus and the light of the menorah have similarities? Absolutely. There are a number of letters and talks that the Rebbe delivered to Yutas Kislev Hanukkah and said that's what it is. Remember, it says in Zayar, it says in Sfarim, that that Nigla the Tera is compared to bread, bosor, meat. Primis Tera is compared to wine, and primis de primis, rosin de rosin is compared to oil. Because just like when you're an olive, when you look at the olive, you don't see the oil. It's like hidden within. The same thing in the teira, the primis, the inner dimension of teira is compared to oil. And hence, chsidis, therefore, is like olive oil. That's the connection. The Rebbe Rashab says, even though it's difficult to say, that Yutas Kislev, which was pressured, was a, a, a time of... Uh, Distress for the Alter Rebbe, but you can say, he said, even though it's difficult to say that the Alter Rebbe is like the olive, the Gemara says, Azayis, le moitzi shamne atrikechenese. An olive does not produce oil until you press it, further connecting it to Hanukkah. And that's the connection. Hanukkah is, we spoke before about the, celebrating the Neshama, the Ruchnis of Torah Mitzvah and of Jews. What is Chesidus? Is to illuminate, ignite. Celebrate the Neshama. So that's the connection. And as a follow to that, is there a connection between Hanukkah and the yeshiva students of Temchet Mim being called lamplighters? Neiris Lahoyer. And the answer again is yes. The Rebbe Rashab called them Neiris Lahoyer. 
So Neiris Lahayir in general, we know there's a Meneir in the Beis Hamidrash and we see the idea of lighting candles on Shabbos and before Yom Tif, before Shabbos, before Yom Tif. But on Hanukkah is the festival of lights. So Hanukkah absolutely has a connection. Maybe this is one of the reasons and maybe, I don't remember if the Rebbe said it ex- explicitly, that the Rebbe would give Hanukkah gelt. Well, we have the custom of giving Hanukkah gelt in general, but especially to the students in the yeshiva. Neiris Lahayir. And we're not just meant to learn Torah and keep, and keep mitzvahs. Well, that's not a just, but not suffice, but also to be tefeich amenas latfiach, to be a walking menorah that illuminates and warms your entire environment with ner mitzvah v'teirah er, with the flame of the candle of mitzvah and the light of Torah, igniting and illuminating and bringing to life and fanning the flames of ner Hashem nishmasod and the soul of every, human, of every person being the flame of God. Okay. She's a lot of questions. I'm just trying to keep it all organized. How do we apply the lessons of Hanukkah in the winter to the southern hemisphere? So here goes like this. It's taught that Hanukkah falls out in the beginning of winter when days are shorter and nights are longer. Yes, indeed. Because specifically, that's the time we need the extra light that the menorah represents. There you go, another connection. The season. Hanukkah also in the winter. Shorter, the, the, the longer nights. To illuminate the dark. To, to warm the cold. But how then does that work in the southern hemisphere? In Australia, for example, is the beginning of summer when the days are longer and the night is shorter. Well, the same question can be asked about Pesach. We know Pesach in the Torah says, Chodesh Aviv. It's in the spring. And in the southern hemisphere, it's the opposite. It's in the autumn. And the answer is, even though I have not seen it explicitly, but based on some of the Rebbe's talks, that when the world is completely aligned, then everything would be in the physical exactly as it is in the spiritual. But being that this world is not aligned completely, so there are things when they come down into this world, in some places it may not be exactly. For example, when we bless the new moon, Kiddush HaLavona, we do it not when the new moon is in your place, we do it when the new moon is in Israel. Because that's where the post, that's the quintessential place that's aligned with the spiritual worlds. The Rebbe has a fascinating talk between Adar and Abshmuel regarding Ashnasa Ibur and Alipir. That in Alipir you add a month of other why to reconcile the discrepancy between the solar and the and the lunar year. The question is, is it exactly or not exactly? And the Rebbe says, because sometimes things in the spiritual can be in a perfect way, when it comes to the material world, it's not exactly. So based on that, I would suggest that there are parts in the world where they are living with Hanukkah as it is in Eretz Yisrael, which is, of course, the center of the universe. And their Hanukkah is in the winter, and when the nights are shorter. Or longer, I should say. So the message is still there. But as it manifests in this world, it manifests in each part of the world in its own way, which also teaches us the diversity. The world is diverse. So the message, the spiritual message, remains the same. Now, can you say that there's a lesson for a place where it's summer months, summer months, and the nights are shorter? I'm sure you can learn a lesson from it, but nevertheless, the Hanukkah main message is the way it is in the center of the universe, or what is called Eretz Yisrael, which really includes the whole northern hemisphere in this context. So many things we learn lessons from, even though we don't have it physically in our world, but we learn the spiritual lesson, and that remains consistent anywhere you are in the world. I'm sure that you can probably apply, as I said, Hanukkah equally to the Southern Hemisphere in its particular situation. But that is not something we're going to find the Torah, because Torah is talking about Hanukkah as it is, as I said, in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. Are women included in the mitzvah of Hanukkah? 
Is it customary for women to light Hanukkah candles even though it's a mitzvah, which means it's time-bound mitzvah. It's only a certain time of the year, a certain time of the day. Because part of the miracle of winning the war was done through the heroic act of Yehudas when she risked her life to sneak into the tent of the Greek general. And after giving him strong mind, mind with rufis, she chopped off his head. So the Giyad Teisvah, the Gemara says, So there are mitzvahs, even though they're time-connected, but since the women were also in the nest, both benefited from the miracle and actually, in a way, initiated the miracle, so therefore they also have that same responsibility, which only teaches us that the universal messages of Hanukkah are for everybody, for men and women. That's the answer, the brief answer. Okay. Now a bunch of questions that were asked regarding the shamish and the candles themselves. What is the concept of the shamish of the Menorah according to Chassidus? So we know there's the eight candles, but there's also a shamish that rises above them all. A shamish means someone that serves. So the shamish is not the mitzvah. The shamish is the candle that lights all the others. Because it says, one of the reasons, we don't have permission because these are holy candles. So you don't light one candle to another. You don't want to use it for a different purpose except as an end in itself. That is the mitzvah of Hanukkah. So we have a shamish that like serves, that with that you light each one of the candles. But everything in Judaism and everything has its lessons. So there are lessons about the shamish. One of them that I heard, I think it may be published, maybe not, that though the shamish is not one of the mitzvahs, not one of the eight, but nevertheless, where is it placed? It's always placed above the others. Because when you serve another, it certainly gives you a certain exalted state. So here's the interesting paradox or irony. That though the shamish is not the mitzvah, but because it helps another, it's selfless in that sense. So selflessness rises to the top. Not that it's superior, but it has a certain virtue because it's dedicated completely to only one thing, to the other candles. Even poetically, you can say, look at the shamish. It looks at its so-called products. It's not a product of the shamish, but the shamish was the one that lit them all. So think of it like the mother that hovers above them. And that selfless servant. That the mitzvah is not in the shamish, but because it serves the others. So when you help another, there's a certain quality that you attain. That gives you that type of that you're above on a higher level. I'm sure there are more messages and lessons in Bnei Yisachar and uh, Shai Yisachar that talk about this and other Svarim, but that's one of them. The follow-up question to that, or the continuing question is, so why don't we have a Shamash for Shabbos candles? Well, Shabbos candles, we don't have that expression, in long As a matter of fact, one of the reasons we light candles is because the Oynik Shabbos, the pleasure of eating a meal, can be compared when you sit in the dark and when you sit by light, which suggests that even if you use other light, that the Shabbos candles are actually, yes, being used. Hanukkah candles, you're not supposed to be sitting and even learning or other things by the flames. The flames have to be pure. So the question is why? Shabbos Kedish, near Shabbos Kedish, so it's also holy flames. And the answer is, because let's go back to what we said before. Remember, Hanukkah is about the preservation and the rededication, the renewal of the integrity, the pure olive oil. That was because that was what was defiled. So when we light the candle, let it be pure, without any ulterior motives. Even ulterior motive of using the candle, let's say, to do something, a mitzvah, or to learn Torah. Shabbos doesn't have that element. Shalom has a very different purpose. Shalom bias, harmony at home, as the Rambam says. And that, in many ways, has strengths over Hanukkah. That's why, if you only have money, to light one candle and it's Shabbos and Hanukkah, Friday night, Friday before Shabbos and Hanukkah, you're supposed to light Shabbos candle because God la shalom, harmony at home, peace, shalom bayis is greater than pesum the miracle. But still, Hanukkah has its lesson and that lesson is purity. Doing something, don't mix anything else into it. That's why you need a Shabbos. Shabbos doesn't have that element. 
So you don't need the shamish. You light the flame themselves, and one flame can light another flame. Okay. That's the shamish. Next question. Are we allowed to read the book of the Maccabees? Were these books once considered part of the Teda, but then the rabbis decided that it's not actually part of the Teda? Even if it's not part of the Teda, can we trust that the writings are accurate and give a truthful account of the history during that time period? So there are books that were not canonized, that were not part of the Sifre Kedish, let's say, like the Megillah, Esther, Megillah Sester. Hanukkah does not have a Megillah that's part of the Chavdalet Sifre Kedish, which means part of the Tanakh. But nevertheless, there was Sfarim written, Sefer HaMakabis, there's the Megillah Santiochus. The Rebbe actually spoke about this in Tov Shenun, Pasha Bayesh of Hanukkah. He said, why not? Why the Megillah Purim is also not from the original prophets. It came due to the story of Purim. And Esther and had to make a special request that Chacham should make it part of the clay of Sifre Kedish. Why was not Megillah Santiochus or Sefer HaMakabis? And the Rebbe's answer is the same idea, because Hanukkah reaches a place of darkness. So there's no Sfarim that are so-called Sifre Kedish. There are the story, the history. How much you can rely on it? Some say you can rely more, some say less. Some compare it to, for example, the Sefer Yosifun of Josephus. That it actually tells the accurate story. But it doesn't have the Gdusha, the holiness. Because that's the point of Hanukkah, is to come to a place even when you don't have a Sefer Kaddish. So the Rebbe explains there, very interesting Sikha. Talks about Nittl as well. Check it out. So the answer is that the, that's the main reason, and that's, that explanation of the Rebbe's is a beautiful explanation of why that's the case. That it's not one of the Svarim. Are we allowed to read it? I've never seen that one shouldn't read. The, Re- the Alter Rebbe writes in Shulchan Aruch that times when you can't learn Torah, you could read some of these Sfarim. Or actually he talks about it more in the context of whether it's considered something like on Shabbos, are you allowed to read such books? And he says, yes, you could read it because it has Chochmah in it, and wisdom and so on. So in that context, I don't see any reason not to. Um, do you have to read it? No, it's not a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. But it does have inf- interesting information in it. And this is sometimes called the category of Sifri Chitzenim. What does that mean? Books that did not become canonized, but they're still written by, uh, by reliable people. But can we rely on every word as we rely on Tanakh? Obviously not. But that's the general attitude to these type of books. Okay. Now a few questions about the dreidel. The dreidel. I want to make sure I went through everything here. This looks good. Why are we allowed to use a dreidel since its origins are from a spinning top called a teetotum used in a pagan gambling game? Well, some say that's their roots, but that's not necessarily the Torah way to look at it. The Svarim that we rely on say that the dreidel was used actually when the, the Greeks were trying to prevent the, the Jews and especially the children from learning Torah, so they would hide by playing dreidel. So if anyone came to see what are they doing, they played this little game. That's the, considered the traditional root of the dreidel. Did it assume different customs over time and does it have similarities to other rituals? Perhaps, but that, that we don't take from other rituals. Judaism does not base its anything on, God forbid, pagan rituals. So it's more of a secular way of explaining the dreidel and not the, the Torah way. So therefore, now on the other hand, you don't see the Rabbeim Echsidus make dreidel into some major mitzvah on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is lighting the candles. Hanukkah gelt is a custom. Celebrating together, even giving gifts. Hanukkah gelt, as I said. And other aspects of Hanukkah. Eating latkes. Dreidel though there's mention made of it in some places, but you don't see it was necessarily a, a mifza dreidel. Again, we're not negating it. Children do play it. Adults play it. 
But it's not something to necessarily be mahadr. Especially you talk about the gambling aspect, that's altogether not in the spirit of Judaism and Yiddishkeit. I'm, I, I don't understand how that evolved, where we use it. I mean, if you play a game and it's not considered gambling, you're talking about a few pennies. But if it wants to become something that's similar to gambling, that obviously is not in the spirit, not of Hanukkah, not in Torah in general, or since we're on the topic. So it's Mini Yisrael, and that's what it is. And there are, there are Svarim, B'nai Socher again, talks about the Ramozim, the hints, the dreidel, there are mystical explanations of it, the Nun, the Gimel, the He and the Shin, Nez Godel Hayasham, and some of the other uh, Ramozim and hints within a dreidel. So you see from that, a dreidel does have significance. I was just mentioning, it's not something that you see that the Rabbim said, like they talk about the fifth night of Hanukkah, the third night of Hanukkah, coming together, Hanukkah gelt. You don't see that dreidel was necessarily a central component. But I want to make it clear, I'm not saying it's not, that it's not, some, it's not negating it either. Just a question of how much emphasis. Is there significance that the letters of an adredal nun gimel heishin are gematri 358, which is the same gematri as Mashiach? I believe the Bnei Yisrochah says that. Maybe I have to look inside, I don't recall right now. But there is significance. Significance, Hanukkah has a connection. Eight days, remember, Mashiach is from the Shemayin Nesichi Odom. Mashiach is connected, transcendence to the eighth day. So there's always a connection. Um, and uh, it's an interesting point. Can spinning a dreidel for fun as a game somehow make Mashiach come faster? If so, I would spin a dreidel all day long, every single day. Uh, that I have not heard. I think that anything that's done, apitera brings Mashiach closer. If it inspires people to be more committed, more tater, more mitzvahs, then it's going to bring Mashiach. It's not just the spinning of a dreidel. We don't have anywhere it's a mitzvah to spin a dreidel. If it's part of Rishus, like, you know, this is to misameach, celebrate your family and your children, and they're enjoying themselves on Hanukkah, then you could say it's L'Shem Shemayim. So that, again, brings more godliness into this world, which, of course, speeds Mashiach's coming. And with that, I believe I've covered quite a few questions that came in about Hanukkah. So let's use the rest of this time for some other questions, some follow-ups, See how much I can cover here. So let's do a few follow-ups. In your program called Your Soul Needs Your Body, you mentioned the teaching that the table is the altar and the meal is an offering. I just want to point out that in addition to this program that we do, My Life Chassidus Applied, we do over 12 programs every week. So there's a Wednesday night class called a master class which is really universal for, most all, for all audiences. Less, I use less Hebrew and so on, but it's the same principles. We have My, we have my Life Chassidus applied, we have Tanya applied. My Life Tanya applied every Mitzvah Shabbos Saturday night at 10 p.m. New York time. I give an every morning an I Am Base class, which you welcome a live class on Zoom and on YouTube. On Sunday afternoons, Meaningful Live is a short 20-minute Biblical characters or biblical events decoded, lessons from different biblical Torah events or personalities, as well as a bunch of other programs. So please check it out. So sometimes some of the questions that come in are on some of the other programs that I've done. This is in addition to the additional programs. Just this week, past week, for example, Yutas Kislev, Abik Fabrengen we did in Boca Raton, which was live-streamed as well as the night before here in New York in Crown Heights. So it was also live streamed. So I'm saying this firstly just to share the programming. Please take advantage. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com, there's a calendar where you can get every detail of every program we do. And this is another opportunity to pitch and say, please help us in supporting all these programs. We literally reach hundreds of thousands of people, but there's so many more to reach. So go to GiftOfMeaning.com and please generate, please Contribute generously. Okay, so here's the question. In your soul needs your body, you mentioned the teaching that the table is the altar and the meal is an offering. I understand that the Shabbos table is considered the Mizbeach, the altar, and the food we eat is like the carbon or offering sacrifice that was offered on it. But I don't, but I don't understand the concept of how the food we eat is an offering. 
The oila or burnt offering was completely burnt, so it makes sense that there was an off that, that that was an offering. But the food we consume, we're ingesting. It's not going up in smoke. So how is that an offering or an act of service to God? Yes, before we eat, we consider why why we're eating to serve God with the energy from the food or to study Torah with the energy with that energy. But still, the eating is a selfish act. We're getting something out of it. It doesn't go selflessly to God. I also never understood how the kahanim's eating of the karbonis was an offering or a way of serving God. Yes, God instructed them to eat it, so it was a mitzvah, but they got something out of it, the nourishment, so it doesn't seem to be purely an offering. Yes, we are commanded to rejoice by eating meat and drinking wine and yomtev, but this seems to be an aveda service to God, not an offering. How to understand this? Thank you. So first of all, in the karbonis themselves, an oil, yes, were completely given to God. But there were things that were also given to God, and it says, Tevla Hashem, and also, Habaylam Nechal, meaning that the people who brought the offering also ate from that carb. You mentioned the Kahanim. So let's explain what an offering means. An offering doesn't mean necessarily that you don't have any benefit from it. It means the benefit you have is completely the Shem Shemaim. Look in chapters 6 and 7 in Tanya, especially 7, when he talks about that when you eat something, you have three options. You can eat it neutrally without any intention at all. You can eat it to indulge like a glutton. And then for the fisha, temporarily, that energy is being, take, is being controlled by shalosh klipus atmeis, by toxic forces. Or you can eat l'sham shamayim. Like it says there, you eat good meat. And, a, and, a, and a wine, aromatic wine, good wine, and it sharpens the mind to learn Torah. Or Milsa the B'dichasi brings there, saying something humorous to open the minds of the students. So you could do something that has Tevel Shamayim and Tevel Bris, as we say. So that's also an offering. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it's even deeper. Because when you give it all the way to God, Kuli Lashem, then it doesn't transform you and your being. You gave it. When you also benefit from it and you eat from it, and then from that food, what you do is you use it, the Shem Shemaim, you take the strength that you got from the food to do a positive thing, that's called transformation. And that too is a carbon. So carbon doesn't necessarily mean like that it's completely given away. You're also giving yourself, and even the things you benefit from, you're also giving to God because you're directing it for that purpose. Okay. Next question. Hi. I was listening to a program called How to Deal with Adversity. I'm adding the program. I was listening to How to Deal with Adversity, another one of our programs, and my difficulty with it was the presumption that I know where I'm going, my direction. It's hard to keep my eye on a destination which I don't know. Thank you for your talks. I do take things away from all of them. Be well. So the point I made there was that when you know where you're going, so even though there's, an ad- there's adversity or some obstacle, so you figure a way to get around the obstacle. Look at roots in a tree. If there's an obstacle, they will work their way around to get to the water that they need for the nourishment to sustain the tree. So the person is asking, but what happens if you don't have a destination? So first answer is, so find one. That's exactly the point. If you find a goal, an objective, the world is going toward Mashiach. You personally want to grow and become and achieve a certain goal, let's say in uh, learning Torah or doing mitzvahs or being kind to others. That is the destination. Secondly, the mere fact that you know that you don't have a destination yet is a good beginning. That's awareness. And that's the response. Now, how do you find direction? You know, someone's on a journey. They don't know where they're going. How do you find direction? So that's why we need mentors and friends. You can't always find it yourself. So that's what I would recommend. So the next follow-up is <laughs> a few weeks ago, I read a question about someone who asks irreverent questions. And someone pointed out, why am I reading such questions of someone who has uh, seemingly just wants to provoke and so on? So the person who writes these irreverent questions responded, I'd like to read what the person wrote. So it's a follow-up to that. Why I ask irreverent questions. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I am the formerly local apicurus 
I saw it because he's writing it. I don't think you can call yourself an apicatus. Ain't no the Masamatsme Russia. But that, that's what he calls himself. I am the formerly local apicatus that now lives upstate that writes in a question to your show every week. And sometimes my questions seem irreverent because I challenge Hashem. And sometimes I question the behavior of the Ovis or other characters in the Torah. I did see that another viewer complained about my style of questions. So I wanted the opportunity to explain myself. Okay. It is true that sometimes I can be jaded and bitter. While I can't tell my entire life story in a short note, I'll just say that many times in my life I did what the Torah said, but unfortunately, instead of seeing a positive outcome, I saw the opposite. A few examples. During the riots in 1991, I heard a scream and looked out my window and saw a rioter stomping an elderly Jewish man who had fallen to the ground, on the ground. I had a slingshot in my room and I put a marble in it and shouted at the rioter. He got scared and ran away, but the cops saw me doing it and arrested me. I'm happy I was able to save someone's life, but then I had to be humiliated and sit in jail for three days. The community wouldn't help me find a lawyer. And to this day, I've been struggling financially because I've been forced to do lousy minimum wage work because when I apply for good jobs, they deny me because I answer truthfully on the application where it asks, where it asks if you've ever been arrested. I've never been arrested before that incident, but that one time was enough to leave a permanent stain on my record. And when I see in the Torah that David did the exact same thing to Goliath, and the community lauds him and makes him king, it's very unsettling. I'm not looking for a parade, and, but why do I have to suffer for doing a mitzvah? So excuse me for being jaded. When I was a kid in camp, I was hurt by a staff member. I complained to the head counselor, and instead of helping me, he turned me into the bad guy by saying, Hashem will be angry at me for saying Lashon Hara. They weaponized the Torah against me, so excuse me for being jaded. I hope you understand now, saying to the audience, why I'm reading this, because I, I feel deeply touched when people write in this way, because they write openly. And though not everybody is always happy with what he's going to be writing or has written, but I still think it's important to let people have a voice. I mean, that's the dignity. And of course, responding properly. And if someone says something that's irreverent or inappropriate, we have to call them out on it as well. But at the same time, I'm, uh, I, I respect the person's writing, so that's why I'm reading it, even though it's not such a short letter. Continuing on. When I graduated high school at, at the yeshiva, I wanted to continue my religious education and became a rabbi, but the yeshivas only had enough spots for students from Gezhet families, and I wasn't accepted. I didn't know what to do, so I showed up to 770 every day and begged some of the students to learn with me, or at least let me sit next to them and listen. They were happy to learn with me, and this lasted a few weeks until a member of the Anhala asked me who I was and said, since I'm not officially a student, I have to leave and stop disrupting the other students. So, now, so when I read that, when Hillel snuck into yeshiva because he couldn't afford the tuition, he is lauded for a heroic act. But when I did it, I'm somehow a bad guy that is being disruptive. So excuse me for being jaded. The person who criticized my letter said it's irreverent to challenge Hashem because everything Hashem does is good, whether we see it or not. When Avram challenged Hashem not to destroy Sodom, nobody says Avram was irreverent because he should have known everything Hashem does is for the good. But when I challenge Hashem for allowing the Holocaust, suddenly I'm irreverent. Excuse me for being jaded. I think the person who complained about my questions is simply in making a similar mistake that the Meraglim made. They slandered the land of Israel because they preferred to stay in the desert where everything was perfect and Hashem did all the work so they, could have, so they could have time to learn Torah all day in a perfect spiritual state instead of going into Israel and having to deal with doing physical work in an imperfect world. Their mistake was that, that it is Hashem's plan that we thrive in the challenges of an imperfect world and reveal the godliness within the physical world. That person might live in a bubble he created where everything is perfect, but I live in the real world where there are many challenges. And when I see something unfair, I'm not afraid to call it out. The accusation that I'm trying to provoke Rabbi Jacobson does, does have truth to it, but I'm being provocative for the purpose of inspiring dialogue and not to try to upset Rabbi Jacobson. I love Rabbi Jacobson, and I would never purposely do anything to upset him. Rabbi Jacobson is one of the only people that has taken me seriously and answered my questions. I have so much appreciation for this forum. I benefit greatly from it. It inspires me to read Chitas every day so I can know the weekly Parsha. 
and ask any relevant questions that come up. And after Rabbi Jacobson answers the questions, I often learn something new that I didn't know before. And after the program, I go into Google and research the subjects deeper to understand it even better. So this, quote-unquote, Apicatus, does a few hours of Torah learning every week because I'm inspired to do so by this Sunday night program. And also the amazing Tanya Applied program and the programs that explain the Rebbe Rashab's Mimers. Rabbi Jacobson explains deep concepts in Chassidus in such a beautiful way that even a simpleton like me can understand. So to the person who wrote the letter criticizing me, even though I don't agree with you on this issue, I still want to wish you a happy Hanukkah to you and your family. May the light and inspiration of Hanukkah last all year in your home. And may Hashem bless you with good health and an abundance of parnosa and many revealed blessings for the good. If my note here doesn't satisfy you as to my intentions, we can take it a step further and have a peaceful public debate on the issues where you can be the Rambam and I'll be the Pablo Cristiani and Rabbi Jacobson can moderate. And the loser of the debate has to give $100 to Zdokka. And I hope I lose, which really means I hope Hashem increases my parnasa so I can afford to give $100 at, at a time to Zdokka. Okay, enough said. I Again, I am happy to be able to, I'm honored, I should say, to be able to present people's voices in this sense. Something from last week, Parsha. Is there an allusion in the teachings of the Arizal that what happened to the ten martyrs was a punishment for Yosef's brothers selling him into slavery? We know Hashem punishes midi connected mida, tit for tat, so a fitting punishment would have been to sell the ten martyrs into slavery, not to murder them in this most barbaric manner. So what's going on here? So first of all, you don't need to turn to the Arizal. In the very Ela Eskara, in the prayer we say Yom Kippur, it says it right there, that the Roman emperor was the one that come, called, summoned them and said, is it true that the Torah says that when you kidnap someone, you should be put to death? And since your ancestors, the ten tribes, kidnapped their brother and sold him into slavery, they never were killed for that. There was no death penalty. So now you have to get the death penalty. And that's when they send up the shliach to heaven, Rabbi Shmuel King Godel, and so on. And, and, and he comes down with the, the sad news that this is exited from above. That is us and others for him explain the connection. But the idea is right there. And the answer is there is also the answer that you see. It's not just about slavery, it's about kidnapping is a death penalty. Now we have to understand on a deeper level why with these martyrs, they, they had nothing to do with it. But remember, it's collective when something happens in history, at some point it has to come around. And they're, and they're being barbarically murdered, as, this, as terrible as it is. And zu teirah v'zu Is this teirah and this is reward as the malachim and Moshe yelled to God and, and said to God? God says, shtek. So we may never understand it, but something that they, the, the price that they paid for what had happened in some way refined the world and refined us and gave us strength today that we don't need to go through such experiences again. So it's not a justification, but the bottom line is that that, that uh, association is there and it's explained in different svarim on a deeper level what that is. Asori Harugi Malchus, the Ten Martyrs, also considered to be a type of halos man, like an offering. They were offered, literally, in a way to atone and protect, and as I said, to pave the way for the beautiful things that would happen to their children and grandchildren. When Mashiach comes, Eit Hashem after be will be able to perhaps appreciate that even how these seemingly very terrible negative things had positive outcomes. Again, it's not justifying it, it's not trying to explain it. Okay. More um, follow-ups, but I'm going to stop here and wish everybody a very, very an illuminating Hanukkah. May Hashem bless you and bless all of us. That this Hanukkah, that just like Haneris Halola, these flames never, will never end. You should march in to the Gula Mitzvah Vashleim straight from Hanukkah and rebuild the, the rebuilding of the Third Temple and the Meneda that will forever never be extinguished again. A permanent and eternal edifice. The entire world will be filled with the light of godliness and the light of Torah Mitzvahs.
May, may it be immediately, and may we do our part in spreading chassidus, in spreading the, the olive oil and the olive of teira, which is primis teira, and chassidus, literally, like al pesach beisemibachutz, taking this powerful light and bringing it to the farthest outskirts of this world, transforming the world into a dira betachtenim, a home for God. And please again go to giftofmeaning.com, partner with us, partner with me in this effort of bringing Chassidus to every corner of the world through, gen- through contributing generously at giftofmeaning.com. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.